that last song is, um, man, it's a great song. And just a reminder that beholding our God is what should be taking place week in and week out as we look at the Gospel of John. We'll talk about this later this morning, but let me remind you that Jesus comes to reveal the Father to us. And we see the Father, we see the character of God as we, as we see the Lord Jesus. And so uh, my, my hope and my prayer is that each week as we study the Gospel of John together, that we are beholding our God together. Um, let me just say before we get to this passage that uh, we had the funeral yesterday for Pat Johnson. Um, many of you have known Pat for a very long time. Um, and uh, many, many of you were so um, helpful and served in such a tangible way yesterday by preparing food. Um, Jeanette Foster did a wonderful job in organizing that and, and getting everything going, and I could just list a bunch of names. There was a, um, a horde of you in the kitchen getting everything ready and cleaning up afterwards efficiently, and it was just wonderful. And so thank you for serving in a very clear and tangible way. And then uh, just continue to pray for, uh, for Pat's daughter, Kathy, and then the rest of the family as they uh, just deal with losing um, a very sweet lady who has walked with the Lord for a very long time and had a wonderful and major impact in their lives. Um, so, so continue to pray for them. All right, uh, John chapter 12 is where we will be this morning. You heard Jesus, as Trevor read, mention the word, our. The hour is one of the most basic and important ways in which we measure time. You probably think about hours every day. We calculate miles per hour. We expect one hour dry cleaning. Hopefully dinner will be ready in less than an hour. I looked it up this week. Did you know that the farthest that a human being has run in one hour is... 13.2 miles. That's a long way to run in an hour. When you think about an hour as a unit of measurement, the hour, in my opinion, is so much better than the second. The second is kind of annoying. It's short. It's always on the move, one to the next. But an hour, a lot can happen in an hour. You can watch two episodes of your favorite sitcom. You can listen to an entire album by your favorite artist. You can immerse yourself in a novel and get quite a bit of ground covered. Lose yourself in it in the course of an hour. I like the hour because it's long enough for several events to happen in it, but it's short enough to narrow in an hour of time on almost exactly when something can happen. It's a wonderful unit of measurement of time. And I think maybe that's why John chose the hour and why Jesus uses the metaphor of an hour to describe this time period when his death will take place and when the culmination of his ministry will happen. Everything in this, this gospel has been pointing toward the hour that is coming. I mean, if you think back over the course of the Gospel of John, or if you've not been with us, but you've read the Gospel of John, you know several times in this Gospel, the, the unit of time of an hour has been mentioned. Remember back in John chapter 2, all the way in the second chapter, the very first sign that Jesus performs, the wedding, at the, the, uh, the turning of water into wine at the wedding in Cana in Galilee. Remember, Jesus sort of rebukes his mother because she apparently wants him to do something about the lack of wine that they have at the wedding. And he says... I can't help you, my hour has not yet come. And so this time period is clearly on his mind. He knows that it's, it's approaching, that it's coming. 
If you remember in John chapter 4, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and he says that an hour is coming when those who worship God will worship in spirit and in truth. It's, it's not here yet, he says, but it's approaching. It's, it's coming quickly. In John chapter 7, the crowds are getting more and more frustrated with Jesus because of some of the things that he says, and they try to arrest him. But the scripture says that they can't do it. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And so there are are indications throughout this book that we are expecting a particular hour to arrive that is long enough when a lot of significant events are going to happen, but it's short enough to say, here it is. It's coming. It's happening. The entire story that John has been telling throughout this gospel has been anticipating and expecting the arrival of a particular hour of time. And if you look at John 12 and verse 23 here, for the very first time in this gospel, and there will be other times that this is said, but in verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come. Everything's been building up to this point, and something has brought about this threshold of time where now the hour has arrived. And the whole rest of the book, all of the chapters and the events that are remaining in the Gospel of John, which is is quite a bit of territory for us to cover over the next few months, but everything that's going to happen in the rest of the book happens during this hour. It has arrived here, it is here, and everything that Jesus does from now on is going to be in response to his knowledge that the hour has come. Look at John 13, skip ahead a little bit, John 13 and verse 1, look what it says here. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, right? He acts out of love based on the knowledge that his hour had come. Things are going to change with this hour. The world will be different after this hour. How so? How are things going to change because the hour has Come. That's what I want to talk about this morning. That's what I want to show you from this passage, John 12, verses 20 to 36. So we're going to look at six outcomes. As soon as my clicker comes through here, there we are. Six outcomes of the arrival of Jesus' hour. Six outcomes of the arrival of Jesus' hour. And all of these outcomes come because it's here. And they bring about certain changes. And the first one of these is his glorification, verses 20 through 24. Now, to be specific here, this hour brings about the glorification of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's what he says in verse 23. Look back there with me for a moment. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What causes Jesus to say those words? Why does he indicate that the hour has come? Well, let's go back to the beginning of our passage, verse 20. Look there. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Interesting that this brings about the hour. I want you to keep in mind what the Pharisees had just said in verse 19. Go back there and look. This is what we finished up with last week, but look what they say here. In response to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on the donkey, And the people's response to him, the crowds gathering around him, here's what they say. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
They were complaining that the world was going to go after him. And of course, I told you last week, they're complaining, but John views this as a very ironic statement. It's going to project something that's actually going to take place in the future. It's a touch of irony here. This is ultimately what's going to happen is people from every tongue and every tribe all over the world are going to go after him. They're going to believe in him. They're going to pursue him. And that is exactly what is beginning to unfold in verse 20. Look again at what it says. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. These are not Jews. These are not Jews who just happen to speak a different language. These are foreigners who seem to be at least interested in Judaism. They're curious about it. Maybe they're converts, proselytes to to Judaism. But they're here at the Passover expressing some interest in the God of the Hebrew Scriptures. And no doubt they have heard about Jesus. Look at verse 21. So these Greeks, these foreigners, come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They are, verse 19, going after him. This is exactly what the Pharisees didn't want to happen, and now it's beginning to unfold. They're pursuing interaction with Jesus. They're pursuing knowledge of him. They want to know more about him. Look at verse 22. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, the interesting thing is we don't ever find out if they met Jesus. It's kind of a disappointment, right? We don't know if the whole conversation that ensues happens with them there. We have no idea. John seems to be uninterested in whether or not they met Jesus. But Jesus here responds to the knowledge that some Greeks, some foreigners, are pursuing him with these words in verse 23. Maybe these were just spoken to Philip and Andrew. We don't know. But here's how Jesus responds to this knowledge. Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The fact that some Greeks, some foreigners are seeking him indicates that God's work is moving forward and that his work is moving forward in some ways that the Old Testament anticipated, right? The Old Testament anticipates that when Messiah comes, that there will be Gentiles from around the world who will come to him and will come to knowledge of him and will be included in the people of God. That's what the Old Testament anticipates in many ways to be a sign of the the king and of the Messiah. And Jesus says that is beginning to happen right here. And this indicates that the hour of his glorification has come. Now, why does he describe it that way? Why does he say that the hour arriving is going to bring about his glorification? How will he be glorified? Well, he'll be glorified through verse 24, through what happens. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This is how Jesus is glorified. This is how these people, the Greeks, come to truly see him. They want to see him. This is how it happens. This is how you and I come to truly see him for who he is. We see him through his death. He's like a 
a seed that is put in the ground, and he dies, and when that seed is put in the ground and covered up and dies, it brings forth a lot of fruit, and that's how he's glorified. His death leads to fruit among the Gentiles, among the nations, and he is lifted up and honored and glorified through that. The proclamation of his death, his sacrifice for sins, will be proclaimed all over the world, and he will receive glory as that happens. We see the culmination of this in Revelation chapter 5. You probably remember this passage, but a scene in the throne room of heaven describing a scroll that is there, and only this lamb who was slain is able to take the scroll. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. Why? For you were slain. You were like a seed that went in the ground. And by your blood, and here's the fruit, by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then look at this. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is how it happens. His death, ironically, brings the world to him. And much fruit is born because of his death, and he receives glory and honor honor and wisdom and might because of that. His hour equals his death. His death equals much fruit, which results in his glorification. There are other outcomes of this hour arriving. The second one of these is imitation in verses 25 and 26. So verse 24 gives us this principle, okay? This is a principle that is true in the world, the practical, material world in which we live, right? We see this principle every day. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see this with a seed and the abundant fruit that it produces because it goes into the ground and is covered up. Now, Jesus applies this principle to himself here and his death that's going to happen later on in this book. But then what he does in verses 25 and 26 is he takes this principle of dying, then bringing forth much fruit, of receiving new life. He takes this principle and he says that this same principle, the same pattern that happens to him, now is going to and needs to take place in the lives of his followers. The same sort of thing must happen for you and for me. Look at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now I want you to go back to verse 24 here before I explain some of this and notice what happens to the seed when it goes into the ground, or when it does not go into the ground, I should say, and die, right? 
What happens to the seed when it doesn't go into the ground and die to itself and produce fruit? It remains alone. It doesn't benefit anyone. It doesn't enjoy the new life of a plant or a tree. Nothing really great happens out of this. And so Jesus takes that principle and says that it's true of you and it's true of me as well. Now, this principle of dying and bringing forth fruit, what realm is Jesus talking about here? How is he applying this to us? What does this mean for us? Well, he uses a phrase in verse 25 that I think gets to the heart of it. Look there. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life, and here's the phrase, in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus is not, when he says hates his life, he's not saying that you despise the good gifts of God that you've been given in this physical life that's here. That's not what he's saying here. He's giving you a matter of comparison, and he's talking about the way you, the perspective you have of your temporal life here. Here's what I think he means. There is a way of living your life that acts as if these 70 or 80 or so years that you get on this earth are all there is. This is it. And you have to get every amount of fun and self-enjoyment and pleasure out of this life that you can because this is it. In other words, there is a way of living your life here that ignores the next life. That's what Jesus is talking about here. That's the comparison that he gives here. It's a matter of value. Which realm do you value more? It's not that physical life here is unimportant or or not significant or that you should despise all the physical and material gifts that God has given at all. But it's a matter of, of enjoyment and what you enjoy and you're valuing more. One author put it this way. The one who loses his life because he loves his life is the one who lives as though life in this world is ultimate. There's nothing more important than this life and therefore is to be protected, retained, and maximized as one's fundamental purpose. By contrast, the one who guards himself for eternal life by hating his life in this world, is the one who sees his life in this world as being like a grain of wheat that has to fall into the ground and die so that it can bear fruit in the resurrection. It's a matter of investment. It's a matter of perspective and value. So here's the question for you and I to consider in light of this principle. It's a true principle. This is reality. This is how the world works. And it must be true of Jesus' followers. So here's, here's the question. Do you give, invest your time, your money, your talent, your love, and yourself? Do you give all of those away for the good of other people as an investment for eternity? Are you anticipating the next world and valuing the next world to the point that you are ready to die to self and give away what you need to in order to make sure of your investment in the next world? Or do you desperately try to use your time, your talents, your abilities, and maximize your pleasure in this life without a thought to the next life? It doesn't even enter your mind. You're just trying to get all you can out of the time that you have here on this earth. 
If you die to self, if you live with an eternal perspective, if you give your life away here for the cause of Christ, for the good of others, in order to pursue a relationship with God, if you invest your time here in that way, then you have true life in eternity. Verse 25 is the principle, and verse 26 is Jesus telling us that this principle has to be true of you and I. We have to imitate this pattern that he gives us in dying to self and bearing fruit for the good of others. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. There it is. He must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If, <clears throat> if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Listen, if you desire to serve Christ, then you have to follow him down the road of death to self. That's what has to happen. But, but this path of death to self, it sounds dark, but it's not a foreboding path. It's, it's not a path with no enjoyment. It's a path that values ultimate enjoyment and it values the most significant thing that can ever happen to you and I. What is that thing? Look at the end of verse 26. Look at the outcome of this, right? You serve Christ, you follow him, you go down this pattern of death to self, you give your life away as an investment in eternity, and then if anyone serves me, what happens? The Father will honor him. Now, let's talk about that for a second here. There's all sorts of applications we can try to pull out of this and we can talk about here, but let these words shape the course of your life. Think about the, the massive implications of that. That a life that dies to self and gives itself away as an investment in eternity and follows the pattern of Christ is a life that one day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Through the work of Christ, Yes, there's a possibility here. Think about the, the possibility here and the promise that you and I will give our lives away and receive honor from the creator God of the universe. What could be more motivating than that as a way to invest your life, to hear those words from the creator God of the universe? C.S. Lewis put it like this, and I've always loved this quote. In his sermon called The Weight of Glory, he says this, It is written that we shall stand before him. We talked about this this morning in, in our Bible Institute class, but every person sitting here at some point will stand before the creator of the universe. We shall stand before him, shall appear, shall be inspected. The promise of glory, the promise here of honor, is the promise almost incredible and only possible by the work of Christ that some of us, that any of us who really chooses, shall actually survive that examination, shall find approval, shall please God. To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. Imitation, following the pattern that he gives, and ultimately receiving the pleasure and the honor and the delight of the creator God of the universe. Well done, good and faithful servant. We'll end up at that point, amazingly enough, by the grace of Christ, by the work of Christ, when we cherish him and follow the pattern that he has set down for us. That's one of the outcomes of his hour arriving. His death leads to this for you and I. The third one, Revelation. Verses 27 and 28. Now, after these words, Jesus turns to the difficulty facing him, right? The hour is not going to be a a pleasurable time for him, to say the least. It's going to be a horrible time. He knows the horror that awaits him in this hour. And so look what he says in verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. His point here is that even though the difficulty is so great that awaits him, even though that's true, his entire life has been driven by one great purpose. Everything has been an investment in his life to see one thing happen. What is that thing? Look at verse 28. Here's the purpose. Verse, the first phrase there. Father, glorify your name. That's it. That's what Jesus is all about. That's how he lives his life. This is his driving passion. And that passion is going to take him all the way to his own death. And his death will be in order to glorify the Father. Look at verse 28, the rest of it. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The Father affirms here that he will glorify again his name through the death of Jesus, through this hour arriving. Now, How will the death of Christ be a revelation? This is one of the things I'm saying is an outcome of God's glory. How will God be glorified by the death of Christ? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus is tied to the Father in very, very significant ways. He's tied closely to the Father. John 1.18, we begin this way, right? No one has ever seen God But the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. We know, we behold our God through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when you think about this principle that's given in John 1.18, and then you think about these words here of the revelation of God's glory, the display of God's glory through the death of Christ, what that means is that the death of Christ will make known God's love for humanity and his willingness to save. We see that clearly because Jesus dies. God's glory, his character, the display of all of his attributes, all of his character is put out there. It is made known to a greater degree than ever before through the death of Christ. Jesus is passionate about his father's glory and he's so passionate about it and revealing it and showing it that he's willing to go to the cross for this ultimately to happen. John 17 says it this way in the high priestly prayer. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. It's his goal. 
Verse 22 of this chapter. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see the love of God for his people through Christ's coming and dying on the cross. We see the possibility now of reconciliation with God through Christ's coming. It's there. You can see it. It's revealed to us through his coming and through his dying. 1 John 4 says it this way. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. It's clear. It's revealed. How? That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. The death of Christ reveals the glory, the character of the Father to us. You want to know God? You want to know what he's like? Go to the gospel. That's where we find him. Fourth outcome, resolution. Verses 29 to 31. God the Father speaks here when Jesus speaks in verses 27 and 28 that we saw in verse 28 that the Father speaks out loud The crowd hears him, verse 29, and can't make much of it. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken. Jesus answered, this voice came for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Keep in mind here that we're looking at the outcomes of the arrival of Jesus' hour, right? These are things that are going to happen because he goes to the cross because his hour has come. Don't forget this outcome here. It's easy for us to forget that this is a battle in many ways and that Christ will win a victory over the powers of darkness through his death. A couple of things happen here. One is that his hour coming brings about judgment. What does that mean? Well, Jesus came as the light of the world. What does light do? Well, you can very clearly see the difference between light and darkness when the light comes. And so his light coming into the world will bring about judgment because the darkness is revealed in men's souls. People that don't believe, it is now very clear that they don't believe. The other part of that judgment is fixing what has gone wrong. There is a recognition of what has gone wrong through the sacrifice that is made, and now there's a victory that is won, and everything will be made right. Look at verse 31 again. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the outcome is the ruler of this world will be cast out. Here Jesus is talking about Satan. He's been a liar, he's been a deceiver, he's a trickster. The world has remained under his power, under his sway. He influences, he destroys, he desires to kill. And Jesus' death will be the victory over him. That won't be readily apparent, right? It looks like in the moment that Satan wins because the Son of God is put to to death. But through his suffering and death, 
He wins the victory, and you and I are brought along with him. And it's through his victory, through the defeat of Satan, that he is exalted. Verses 32 and 33. Look there. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now that word translated lifted up there, that's taken from Isaiah 52, verse 13. You're familiar with Isaiah 53. But the passage, the suffering servant song there actually begins in Isaiah 52 and verse 13. And it says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The servant is lifted up, and it's this lifting up that exalts him. It brings him glory. But back in John chapter 12 and verse 33, when Jesus says that he will be lifted up, look how John understands it. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up on the cross. And so two things are happening at once here that we would not normally put together. That's counterintuitive. He is lifted up in shame on the cross and dies for sins that he did not commit in horror. And at the same time, that lifting up and that death and that suffering and sacrifice is the very thing that brings him exaltation. John Calvin put it like this, for the death of the cross which Christ suffered is so far from obscuring his high rank that in the death, that in that death, his high rank is chiefly displayed. Since there, his amazing love to mankind, his infinite righteousness in atoning for sin and appeasing the wrath of God, his wonderful power in conquering death, subduing Satan, and at length opening heaven blazed with full brightness. All of that is put on display and he is exalted through being lifted up on the cross and suffering on our behalf. That brings us to our last outcome here. Verses 34 to 36, the first part of 36. It's a declaration. There's clearly been a crowd listening. Look at 34. So the crowd answered him. I don't know when they entered in. I don't know how much they've been listening to, but they've at least been listening to some because they say in verse 34, they answered him, we've heard from the law that the Christ or the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Their response is hardly a response of faith. It's very similar to a lot of things that have happened earlier in the book. They keep kind of trying to poke holes in what he's saying rather than accepting what he's saying. At the end of verse 34, they say, who is this son of man? They're basically saying to Jesus, what sort of son of man are you describing? What's he like? You're talking about one who is lifted up on the cross and dies? What sort of son of man are you describing to us? They believed that the Messiah would never die. And so what Jesus is talking about here doesn't fit into their picture. Jesus answers, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. John's gospel has had this image of light and darkness throughout it. It's a frequent one that he's utilized. 
Jesus comes as the light of the world, and to believe in him in John's gospel is to see the light and to reject the darkness. To see your sin by the light and say, I don't want the darkness of my sin anymore. I need the light. To be in darkness is to be unable to see the glory of Christ. It's to continue along in the gloom of your sin. And so Jesus here, his message to them in response to them and their lack of faith, they're questioning him. His response is to cut to the chase. What's the core issue here? The core issue is, I'm the light, I'm here, you're walking in darkness, while you have the light, while his word is being spoken to you clearly, believe in the light. That's the message that he gives to them here. He's the light who reveals the Father's glory, and they ought to respond in faith. They ought to believe in him. They ought to take him at his word. And what happens when you hear the words of Jesus in this gospel and you believe him and take him at his word? What happens? All the way back at the beginning, John 1. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's exactly what verse 36 says. While you have the light, Believe in the light that you may become sons of light, children of light. The light is available. Believe in the light. Faith is the instrument that God uses to justify us, to declare us righteous, and to bring us to himself. And so, let me just encourage you this way. The light has been proclaimed this morning. You've seen Jesus, you've seen what his death accomplishes. It is out there. Not perfectly proclaimed, but the text is clear about who he is and what he has come to accomplish. And so while it is out there, while it has been proclaimed, believe in the light. If you're a Christian, let your faith in Christ grow this morning in response to this. Continue to believe in the light. Let your faith go deeper and your trust be more firm in who he is and what he's done. If you're not a believer this morning, consider the proclamation of the light and your response, which should be to believe in him while it is available to you. Let me give you a few questions as we close here to consider for application for yourself. As you think about these six outcomes that I've given to you, here's a few questions to consider. In what areas of your life do you find it difficult to follow the pattern of Christ? Remember we talked about this? The imitation of dying to self, of giving away your life for the good of others, for the glory of God. In what ways do you find that pattern very, very difficult to imitate? Is it, is it your family life? Is it your work life? Is it your church commitment? Is it evangelism? Is it something financial? There are lots of different venues in which we live and in which we should be imitating the pattern that Christ gives us and dying to self for love of God and love of others. So which one is it for you? In what ways, it's another question, is it a help to you that Jesus' death brings about judgment? That his death brings about judgment. Judgment on Satan? 
ridding Satan of his power, but also brings about judgment, discrimination in the sense of clarifying light from darkness. And the fact that his death was judgment for you. In what ways is that reality helpful to you? Take that, process through it, consider that on your own. And then I would say, take one of these outcomes that happen when the hour arrives and are continuing to be reality today, but take one of these outcomes and meditate on how this outcome will impact your particular struggles. What I'm asking you to do is connect the work of Christ to your life this week. How does the gospel change and shape you in your lust, in your anger, in your fear, in your anxiety, whatever it may be that you're going through, take the work of Christ and say, this impacts me here and shapes how I live my life in this way. A few things for you to consider as you think about the arrival of Christ's hour and the outcome of that arrival, what it means for you today. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for this text. We thank you for the privilege of being able to study it together this morning. I pray that you would take it and would apply by the Spirit these words to our hearts, that you would continue the work that you're doing week by week in us, that we would sit under your word, we would hear your word, we would believe it, and then it would shape and form our hearts, our dispositions, our loves, our affections, our joys, what we hate. I pray that this picture of Christ's work would refine us, encourage us, and sanctify us as we see what you have done on our behalf. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.